Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning, the relationship between two types of people is described. Now, this is a common theme in the Bible that we have relationships between two groups of people described. Today it happens to be the relationship between elders and younger men. Elders and younger men. They're two different types of people, aren't they? And yet, we don't like to hear people broken up into categories like this in the first place. So just the idea that there's going to be two types of people described and that they're supposed to behave differently towards one another is a bit of a shock to our egalitarian system in the United States. So listen, pay attention. You can't help but notice how different this is from what we expect to hear. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, chapter 5 starts with therefore, and I hope all of you have heard the Reminder, as you're reading the Bible, when you hit a therefore, you're supposed to ask the question, what is the therefore there for, right? If you've never heard that before, it's a helpful little mnemonic device to remind you to be paying attention to what you're reading because if somebody says therefore, they're, they're referring back to something earlier that they have said. So as we've been studying through First Peter, it reminds us to go back and think, why is he saying, therefore? Well, he's been talking about suffering throughout the book, suffering for our faith, suffering as Christians for godliness, not for our sins. And what he has immediately finished speaking about is the necessity of the household of God living and being a certain way. In contrast 
to the watching world that is both persecuting and is uh, on its way to destruction. Right? He says, if it is with difficulty that the Christian is saved, which that difficulty is the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I would say it was pretty difficult, right? Jesus Christ had to die in order for us to be saved. Then what will happen to those who reject his name? Yes, the question, he leaves it mostly rhetorical, though he, he talks a little bit about it. The godless man and the sinner. They're contrasted. The, the, the faith of the righteous and the community of faith. Here we have him speaking of the community of faith living through persecution and then judgment beginning in the household of faith and everybody using their gifts according to what they have been given. And then he proceeds to therefore. And he makes a special point at this spot to talk a little bit about two groups in the church. And those two groups, as we already saw, are elders and younger men. Now, this is both specific and general, right? He speaks generically about all the elders and about all the younger men, but he's also specific, speaking specifically to those two groups. And then there's a lot of other people in the room who are like, what about us? What does this mean for us? Women aren't addressed at all. What are we supposed to think, right? Well, it's general as well because there's many things that are very applicable in this to everybody. We can, take the, the, we can take the basic concepts that we see here and apply them more broadly, and we will do that this morning. But to start with, Peter is speaking and he's saying, hey, elders, let me take a minute and address my words to you. Elders, I exhort you. So he's not just going to he's not just going to speak to them, he is going to give them a a strong appeal and command, an exhortation. I exhort you and then he lays it on thick. Right? As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he's he's referring back saying I know you guys are going through suffering, but remember I've been saying live like Jesus Christ who suffered. I personally witnessed that suffering. Witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Remember he starts the book by talking about the imperishable inheritance that we have. That's part of the glory that he is speaking of that we are going to partake in. And he's saying... Listen, as your fellow elder, as someone who's witnessed the sufferings of Jesus Christ, and as someone who will partake in the glory that is to be revealed, I'm speaking with all of that weight behind me, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. 
That's the main thing that they're told. Now, then there's a description of how they're supposed to shepherd, right? But the main thing that they're told is just shepherd the flock. How are they supposed to do it? Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. In other words, you're supposed to do it without being forced to do it, right? You're supposed to do it without being forced to do it. Now, a couple of weeks ago at uh, the Evangel Presbytery meeting, we were examining a man for ordination, and we were asking him questions about church history. One of the things that you have to do in order to be ordained as a pastor is pass a number of tests. One of them is proving your knowledge of church history, as well as uh, your knowledge of the Bible, as well as your knowledge of theology and many other things. But I was asking questions about church history, and one of the questions I asked was, what is your view of forced ordination? What is your view of forced ordination? Now, that's kind of a strange question. It was meant to catch him off guard because this guy knew a lot of church history. So uh, I was trying to trip him up a little bit. But if you don't know, down through history, there have been many men who were forcibly ordained, and that includes... Augustine, whom you all have heard of, as well as his mentor and many other men who are considered church fathers, theologians that we look back to. Even Calvin wanted to retire to do academic biblical work, writing commentaries, and he was, he, he had sort of hidden himself away in a town, and William Farrell was traveling through town and said to him, may God send you and your books to hell if you don't use your gifts in service to the church as a pastor, as an elder, shepherding. If you don't shepherd the flock, what good is all of your study?" And Calvin had the fear of God put into him by William Farrell, although it was not exactly a forced ordination, which is what happened to Augustine, where he was actively avoiding cities that didn't have a bishop because he was afraid of this happening. But he was sitting at church visiting a town that did have a bishop, and the guy who was preaching saw him out there and said, you know, what we have need of is more men who will serve the church. And the congregation got the hint, and they grabbed Augustine, and they pushed him to the front, and then he was ordained. And that was that. Well, Calvin, it wasn't quite that forcibly, but the theological and uh, 
and spiritual force that Pharaoh brought to bear on Calvin, threatening him with God's wrath and punishment, insofar as he had any authority over it, he was cursing Calvin if Calvin did not give himself to the service of shepherding the flock of God. So, what should we make of this little passage that says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not being forced to do it. Well, I have found that it's easy to get confused about this, but if you, but if you just think about this passage, you think about Farrell and Calvin, for example, you realize that what Farrell is doing is he's simply repeating Peter's words. He's saying to Calvin, shepherd the flock. He's repeating that command. And the fact that Calvin is unwilling at that point in time, right, is him failing to meet the requirement of how he's supposed to do it, which is not under compulsion. So Calvin, at that point, faces a decision. And the decision is, is he going to say, fine, Farrell, you forced me into it. I guess I'll come to Geneva with you and I'll start doing the work. Or is he going to say, not on your life, Farrell. Do your best with your curses. I don't think they mean anything. Right? Or is he going to actually repent of his unwillingness and say, you know, Farrell, you're right. I shouldn't be seeking to avoid this responsibility. I'll come with you and I'll serve the church of God. I'll shepherd the flock of God among us. You see, there's three different paths there, right? One is to blatantly and utterly refuse to do the work of shepherding. One is to do the work of shepherding, but under compulsion and to stay under compulsion. Fine. I guess I have to get up and keep shepherding. Fine. I guess I have to get up and keep Doing the work, tomorrow's more of the same. But Pharaoh won't let me leave. You see, that's doing the work under compulsion, right? The primary command is shepherd the flock. The secondary command is how to do it, which is not under compulsion, but voluntarily. And so the moment that you decide, okay, I will obey the command to obey the command to go ahead and shepherd. You immediately face the question of how you're going to do it. Are you going to follow the second part of the command to do it not under 
compulsion. Later on, he even, he says voluntarily. And then later on, he even brings in the word eagerly. Eagerly, with eagerness. Verse 2. Later in the same verse. Why? Because that's God's will. That's God's will. When we don't need a better answer than that, do we? We don't need a better reason than that's God's will. But it's not exactly what you would call, you know, the most encouraging, most motivating reason. Not in our human nature. It's God's will. Okay, well then, that's a great reason if you care about God's will. It's a great reason, the more you care about God's will, the better reason it becomes according to the will of God. Voluntarily, according to the will of God. That's how we're supposed to do it. Voluntarily. Well, Peter doesn't only give us that reason. Skip forward a little bit, and at the end of verse 4, he says, You will receive the unfading crown of glory. God is a wonderful Father to us. And although because I said so is a perfectly valid reason, and also you'll get cake at the end is a nice add-on, right? Because we can't have dessert until we can make room on the kitchen counters to make dessert. So clean up the kitchen like I said. You see how, you see how these things work, right? God is doing the same thing here according to the will of God. And also, there's this unfading crown of glory for those who are faithful in the work. Now, a crown of glory sounds like a good thing too, right? Doing God's will sounds good the more you think about it, but also receiving an unfading crown of glory, part of that imperishable inheritance that we have promised to us, that sounds, that sounds nice as well. Now you notice how I transitioned to talking about the dinner table and the kitchen. You see how applicable this is more, gen- more generally than what we're seeing right here? Well, the same is true in the family when you think about who the shepherd, who the elder in a family is. If the elders are part of the requirements for the qualifications of an elder that they have, what, managed their own households well, right? You see that God has made the comparison between the family, the household of God, the household of faith, and the nuclear family. So we can do the same thing here. We can realize, oh yeah, if the elders are shepherding the flock, if they're the ones that are, that are exercising oversight, well, that's the, there's something like that in the family too. 
And so fathers, fathers, this is a command for you as well. You need the same command. Father your family, not under compulsion. Don't be doing it out of fine. Fine, I'm doing it. Don't, don't have that sort of attitude when you're, when you're leading your family. Like, okay, I guess I can't get out of this any longer. It's time for me to finally make a decision. I'll get to it now. That's under compulsion, right? But no. Shepherd your family without needing to be goaded to it by your wife. Oh, don't laugh. Did you laugh? <laughs> How many wives know what I'm talking about? None of the husbands don't have to raise their hands. <laughs> it is funny, isn't it? We need this simple reminder, don't we? That the work of being a shepherd, the work of oversight is work, and that there is a temptation to both avoid it or to only do it when we're finally compelled to do it. Right? I've had this conversation with many of you. Recognizing this, this temptation to uh, say, you know what, it's hard. I'm kind of sick of bearing responsibility. I've been working hard all day. I get home. I'd rather just let somebody else run things for a while. I'd rather not have to shepherd right now. I know that I have a whole flock of children. And I know that they need guidance, and, but look, can we just let them do what they want for a while so that I don't have to worry about it? Have you talked to him yet? Would you please leave me alone? I will do it, I promise. That's kind of like doing it under compulsion, right? Not so voluntarily. What does it mean to shepherd the flock? If that's the command, what is shepherding? Well, shepherding... If you think of sheep, that's the, and a shepherd, that's, that's the analogy that God is using for what it means to, to do this work. Sheep are out in the fields, and they need food, and they need water, and they need them provided by the shepherd. They also need protection, right? They need to be guided from one place to another. They also need to be rescued because they tend to do things like fall off cliffs. Surely not. I watched a great video a couple weeks ago of shepherds working hard to get a sheep out of a ditch that had been dug. And it was just this wide and, you know, it was probably yay deep. And the sheep just fit right, right down in there. And they are working hard. You're thinking, how does a sheep get wedged, stuck perfectly in this, and can't move, can't go forward, can't go backward, can't go up, can't go down, right? 
the only hope for that sheep is shepherds, getting them out. So they finally get that sheep up with the work of several men. I'm not remembering all the details of this video, but what I do remember very clearly is they finally got that sheep out. And immediately it jumped to, to run away, right? Straight back into that ditch, about two feet further on. And this is what shepherds have to deal with. And, and I say that, and you think, is he talking about me? <laughs> that's, the, that's the work. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, that's what my kids are like. <laughs> I just showed you. I just told you. Why are you doing it again? I just spanked you. Like, what do you think is going to happen if you do the same thing over again? This is what it's like to shepherd, right? It requires Patience requires energy, requires repeating yourself, doing the same things over and over again. And I hate to compare you to little children or to sheep because it is a bit insulting, but actually, I don't hate to do it because God said you are sheep. We are sheep. And we are like that, aren't we? Don't we also still need to be told the same thing again and again? Just like you, just like you said last week. Can you just tell me again this week? Yes. I'll tell you again this week. God is good all the time. I shouldn't need to be told that every week, right? But that's part of being a sheep. We're forgetful. We're rebellious. We're dumb. And so then God gives us shepherds. Shepherding takes time. Shepherding is intimate as well, isn't it? You can't dig a sheep out of a ditch without getting up close and personal. You're grabbing the sheep. You're pulling on it. Head, neck, tail, legs, lifting. This is what it's like to shepherd the flock of God. Now, do you understand why the first command is just go ahead and shepherd? Do it. Elders, do it. Shepherd. Because the temptation is to just not do it. There's a lot of ways of pretending to shepherd. Right? Think about, think about the shepherd that's like, oh, yeah, I was out here all night. How come half the flock is missing? I, I mean, I don't know what happened to them. Were you paying attention to what was happening with them? Well, I was, you know, I was... Mostly. Also, 
I was playing computer games. And I was talking on the phone and really, no, I don't, I wasn't paying, I, I mean, what, I started out paying attention, but then I wasn't paying attention when Peter was on top of the playground and crawled off the top of it. That, that, when that happened, I was not paying attention. I was, I had been shepherding, but then I had stopped at some point, right? You can't just, you can't just do it like in fits and spurts. It has to be constant. And so one little thing that you know, I shepherded. I did my shepherding. I spent like an hour shepherding this week. Well, good for you. How many hours are there in a week? Is that a hat that you take off? No longer a shepherd? Nope. It's a hat that just stays on. Shepherding is also authoritative, and this is probably one of the biggest reasons why we don't shepherd today as elders, because people don't want to be shepherded. And if you don't want to be shepherded, and then you've got a shepherd, and the shepherd starts getting intimate and telling you what to do, then what are you going to do to the shepherd? You're going to headbutt the shepherd. That's what sheep do. When they don't like what's happening, they, they butt you. Their heads. Their heads are hard. It hurts. They slam them into you as hard as they can. And surprisingly hard. Well, you know, I was going to shepherd. But... They didn't want to be shepherded, so I just let them do what they wanted. Well, you know what happens with kids when you do that, right? Well, it's the same with sheep. It's the same with the church. Same with the people of God. If we don't shepherd, what happens to the flock? Well, Jesus saw that happening. There were men who were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. The religious leaders of the time. And and the, and the people, he says, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So if you see kids who have run amok and haven't had parents who are willing to shepherd them, you feel sorry for them even as they're making your life miserable, right? They're screaming in the aisles, running up and down, being a terror, and you're like, that kid is really making everybody in this storm miserable right now. But mostly I just feel sorry for him because nobody has ever loved him enough to actually shepherd him. And that's the way Jesus, who is the chief shepherd who will appear one day, that's the way he looked at the sheep when there were shepherds, but they weren't shepherding. He had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So you've got all of this 
all of this command, this, all this weight of authority that Peter brings to bear and says, do the work, I, I have to do it too. I'm a fellow elder with you. We must do the work of shepherding. Do it voluntarily. I've just gotten done talking about how it's hard, how it's continuous, how it can be nasty. And, and he knows all of that. And the, and the people he's writing to know all of that. And that's why he's saying, do it and do it voluntarily. Do it not under compulsion. And by the way, there are also temptations related to it, like getting sordid gain out of it. Now, what's sordid gain? What does sordid mean? Any of you kids know what the word sordid means? Yeah, Liam? Sorted is a different word than sordid, S-O-R-D-I-D. If you were doing a spelling bee, you'd have to ask for me to use it in a sentence. Anybody know? Yeah, take. Gain that you earned the wrong way. So you, you're, you're talking, you're defining sordid gain as a whole, but what does sordid itself mean? The wrong way? Wrong way, wrong methods. Why? It, sordid means dirty, right? It's probably the simplest. Don't, don't serve for dirty money. The apostle Judas did the work of an apostle, but partly he was doing it for sordid gain because he had charge of the money box, right? And so one of the temptations that men who are in positions of authority face is to take advantage of their, of their position of authority for the sake of personal, worldly, financial benefit. Now, this makes sense if you think about the job of a shepherd, where it's like, oh yeah, that sounds like a great job. I can sit out and play on my phone all night, and you'll give me money? I like this. But you see, that's neglecting the work for the sake of the sordid gain. There's also a certain kind of person, though, who likes the idea of doing the work because they like the idea of being in charge. The kind of man who gets married because he likes the idea of having other people he can boss around. Same kind of man who likes to become an elder so that he can tell other people what to do. Right? This is a problem. And so Peter warns against both sordid gain and against lording it over those allotted to your charge. Peter does not back down from the fact that they are in charge. Right? There are a lot, there, there's sheep that, are been, that have been allotted to your charge if you are an elder in the church. They're the members of the church. They've been allotted to your charge. You have been elected for the work by God and by the people. It's exercising oversight. There's, there's no escaping the fact that it's authoritative. It must not be the type of exercised authority that is lording it over those who are allotted to your charge. This is the opposite. It's set in contrast to proving to be examples to the flock. The kind of man who does this doesn't realize that he is being an example to the flock all the time. 
The kind of man who does this doesn't realize that when he acts, his children learn how to act from him. And so when he is selfish and abusive in lording it over his family or the flock, what happens is that the church or the family, the children, learn to act the same way. And then you see it reflected back and you think, that is terrible. The way that he talks to his sister is nasty. It's not kind. It's not loving. It's not. It's mean. It's rude. It's selfish. It's impatient. Why does he act like that? Oh, I've heard those exact same words somewhere before. That's right, it was right here. It's coming out of my mouth to him. He learned that from me. He learned how to be lording it over others. And then what do you realize? You realize, I have to apologize. I have to repent. I have to confess to him while I correct him. It's not, I can't correct him because I've done the same thing to him. You exercise oversight. And you do it the right way. If you do, what will happen? When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive that unfading crown of glory. Who is that chief shepherd? Jesus. And how does he shepherd you? If you want to know how to shepherd the flock, how does he shepherd you? How did he shepherd the people that he was interacting with when he was, before he rose again and then before he ascended into heaven? He was tender with the sheep and he was hard on the wolves. He was compassionate because he loved his flock. And now you realize, shepherd the flock, you realize all of a sudden, oh, I'm an under-shepherd. I'm under the chief shepherd. I'm just supposed to be doing his will. I'm just helping him accomplish his shepherding, right? And that's encouraging because it means you haven't been left alone in the work. It's not just like, figure out what to do, shepherd. (laughs) No, we have a chief shepherd. And that's a big relief for elders. That's a big relief for parents. But also, he's going to appear one day. And he's going to judge whether you have been a shepherd like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or whether you've been a shepherd like Peter and Paul and John. He's going to ask the question, I love my sheep, did you? I love my sheep, how did you treat them?
And so, yeah, the unfading crown of glory is a wonderful promise, but it brings with it that implicit threat of what will happen to those who have caused one of the least of these to stumble. Well, so much for being an elder. I guess we'll have to wait to talk about what the young men are supposed to do till next week. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Gracious God, you have been so kind to us in sending Jesus Christ to shepherd the flock, to be the chief shepherd, a shepherd that loves the sheep, that has compassion on them, that pities us, that deals with us tenderly and patiently, that bears with our weakness, that cares for our wounds, that seeks to know us and what we need. Father, you have also been kind to provide elders for your church under shepherds to carry out that work in your presence and in his place. And yet, Father, these under shepherds, each of us, we are sinners. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the strength to do the work. We pray that you would give us the same love and compassion that Christ Jesus has for us. We pray that you would give us boldness and strength as we deal with false shepherds and wolves. And Father, we pray that you would prevent us from growing weary in the work, but that we would continue it not under compulsion, but eagerly seeking the fruit in the lives of your people, in the lives of our children, in the lives of the flock of this church, and seeking ultimately that unfading crown of glory, that reward that we receive if we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.